It's amazing to me how I could just share some dates with you from the calendar and not communicate anything else, and you would know exactly what I was talking about. January 1st, February 14th, Cinco de Mayo, (laughs) July 4th, December 25th. So without saying anything but the date, you're already thinking about things, right? I've already communicated something just by sharing a date with you. You're thinking of a New Year's Eve party. You're thinking of chocolates and flowers. You're thinking about eating tamales. You're thinking about going to the fireworks. You're thinking about opening Christmas presents on Christmas morning. Some of these dates that I've shared are maybe a little bit more well-known. Some of them are a little bit more culturally specific. But one of the reasons that just telling you a date can conjure up such emotion is because events and memories and traditions, and probably most importantly, the people that you spent time with during those events is going to help form and solidify memories and emotions for us. One of my personal favorites is the fourth weekend in November through the new year. That's that's one of my all-time favorite times of the year. This five-week period really packs a holiday punch, if you think about it. You have Thanksgiving, you get to celebrate Christmas, New Year's is right in there, there's lots of time off of work, everybody's a fan of that. So there's, there's this, this time of year that just really conjures up for me a, a, a lot of memories. It's just a memorable part of the, part of the year for me. And it also starts to get really cold around this time of year, and I kind of like that, and I'm weird like that. So that's another reason I like it. But this is a familiar time. Probably you're starting to think about, man, what do I think about when I think of Thanksgiving? What do I think about when I think of Christmas or New Year's? What traditions come to mind? There are other things that are not as familiar. Think about uh, maybe some of these Jewish holidays. Maybe you didn't grow up celebrating these uh, feasts and, uh, and these festivals. If I started to talk about Rosh Hashanah, or if I talked about Yom Kippur, or if I talked about the Day of Atonement, if I talked about Sukkot, it might not mean as much to you. They, these might not be a cultural norm for you. You might not have grown up celebrating uh, these different holidays, these different feasts. And they're coming up pretty soon, actually. They're kind of the fall festivals, and they're a big three. They carry a lot of weight kind of similar to that that Christmas, uh, New Year's, Thanksgiving time of year. If you look at these three different feasts, this literally translated the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the the Feast of Booze, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And these three holidays fall within a 15-day period of time, so it's even more compact than that five weeks that's my favorite time of year. Again, really heavy-hitting holiday. And as we read our passage today... What we're going to see is we're going to see God's people, the Israelites, observe and celebrate these three holidays in a really revolutionary way. They were familiar with them already. They they knew what was going on. They knew what, what each of these even symbolized. They were really familiar with it, but they even knew some of the traditions there, but they still were missing something. There was something that was was incomplete, if you will. And what we're going to see in our passage today is a switch gets flipped. It's in their hearts and it's in their minds, and it allows them to truly see and to celebrate these holidays with a fresh perspective. They really get to experience it to a whole new depth. And today we're going to read chapter 8 of Nehemiah, and we're going to discover what the instrument of spiritual renewal was that allowed these Israelites to experience these holidays differently than maybe they had in the past. If you're just joining us today, we're in the midst of teaching through the two Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And these books were originally thought to be one section, one unit. Uh, They tell a continuous story. And what we studied in Ezra chapter 1 through 6 
was the rebuilding of the temple under Ezra's leadership. And then what we saw in uh, chapters 7 through 10 is that he rebuilds the people. And then we start to see this theme develop. In Nehemiah chapter 1 through 7, we saw the rebuilding of this outer wall around the, the, the city of Jerusalem. It took 52 days. And now we're at this pivotal point in our chapter, uh, uh, a, real, a real hinged section of our time in Ezra and Nehemiah in chapter 8, where there's this spiritual renewal or this rebuilding of the people. And if you look at our text today, even in just the first 12 verses, the word people is found 13 times. So you can tell that there's a, a distinct shift right now. We're, we're starting out in the, the beginning of Nehemiah talking about the structure. We're talking about the wall. We're talking about something physical. And now there's a new focus. We're talking about the inhabitants that are going to be inside this wall. And in our text today, we're going to see Ezra and Nehemiah working together to address the heart of the people of God so that there could be this complete, this more picture of complete restoration. Time and again, as we've taught through these two books, what we've seen and what we've pointed to is the underlying truth that God is in the business of rebuilding, restoring, and renewing the hearts of his people. That's what he's about. We see that in the context of the Israelites. We see that here in our context of Redemption Church. We see that here in our city. We see that to the ends of the earth. God is in the business of rebuilding, restoring, and renewing the hearts of his people. And when we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, what we're going to probably uh, start to see as a, a theme in our lives as we, as we look at the correlation here is God uses physical things to reveal spiritual truths. Have you experienced that in your life? Maybe something physical happened, an event happened that God used to reveal something spiritual that was going on inside. Maybe it's a, a victory. Maybe it was a, a challenge or something that you faced that was really hard. Maybe it was something that's maybe small in the grand scheme of things. Maybe it was something that was life-altering and changed your entire existence. Something that came to mind as I was preparing this, something physical that revealed something spiritual was the loss of a job. I got fired from a job. And God used this physical event, this hard event in my life, this loss, to reveal what was going on in my heart. He showed me what was going on spiritually. He showed me where the pride was. And that's how God is as at work. And we see that in this, in this chapter. And we see that in this, this book. And we see that in Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole. God takes something physical and he uses it to reveal something spiritual. And this is a larger theme, this idea of spiritual renewal. And we see it really in greater clarity here in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And what we want to do today is we want to unpack what is the causative agent? What resulted in this spiritual renewal for these people? And this is a relatively easy Christian answer. You know, it's God. He, he resulted in the spiritual renewal. But, but what you're going to see and what our text is going to show us in three parts is that God revealed in his word led to spiritual renewal of these people. God revealed in his word led to spiritual renewal of these people. The main idea for today can be summarized like this. God's word transforms God's people and the result is the joy of the Lord. Let's go to the text. If you open your Bibles, we're in Nehemiah chapter 8 today. We're going to have these uh, verses on the board. So if you want to follow along. There's a Bible in front of you if you want to follow along on the screen up above. Either way is fine. If you look at the first verse, it says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. 
So I want to pause here. I know it's early, but I just want to pause for a second. If you look at verse 1, the opening verse, we're saying all the people that we're talking about here have gathered as one man into the square. So something has to be going on. If it's, this gets everybody's attention, there's something that's going to that's gonna be going down here. So all the people are gathered. And what I found is that if you look back in chapter 7, we know that this is about 50,000 Israelites that have gathered. You can kind of go through this, this, uh, this list of uh, the census of people in chapter 7, and you total it up, and there's about 50,000 Israelites that are gathering, and they're all gathering together in the square. How many people here have been to Coors Field, have been to a Rockies game or some event inside Coors Field? Raise your hand just so I can get an idea. Okay. So even if you haven't been inside Coors Field, you can picture a stadium, right? I looked this up. Coors Field has 50,398 seats. That's pretty pretty helpful for my uh, for my uh, analogy here today. So I want you to picture that you're in Coors Field and that it is full. It is sold out. There is not an empty seat there. And what I want you to picture for a moment is that Everybody in the stands, and these are multiple levels of stands. You know, you got the nosebleeds, like you got a lot of seats, like there's levels and decks and elevators and escalators. There's a lot of people that is packed into this place. And what I want you to picture is that everybody stands up and everybody makes it down onto the field. Everybody goes out into the outfield and they crowd around a platform and they say, we want somebody to get up and we want somebody to, to read the Bible. We want somebody to give us God's word. Can you imagine what a, what a spectacle this would be? Like how many people you can cram into that, into that outfield and they're standing around a platform and they're saying, give us God's word. That's a picture of what's going on. This would be, this would be a mind blowing experience if you're a part of this. And now what I want you to imagine is that you're part of that, that group of people and that you spend five or six hours together with all of those other people studying God's word. That's a, that's a long sermon. That's, that's a really long sermon. I think about the longest baseball game to date for the 2017 season. It was six hours and five minutes long. That's a long baseball game. I don't know if I could watch baseball for six hours straight. And these guys are sitting there and they're listening to God's word for six hours. That's amazing. If I had to preach a six hour sermon right now, if you had to listen to a six hour sermon right now, well, what would be going through your mind? The people are there, and they're saying, bring the book of the law of Moses. Bring us the Pentateuch. Bring us Genesis. Bring us Exodus. Bring us Leviticus. Bring us Numbers. Bring us Deuteronomy. We want God's word. It's an amazing picture to think about what's happening right now. Let's read these verses and kind of see what's going on. So, um, starting in verse 1. Uh, they told Ezra and the scribe, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Pediah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashan, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads 
and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. In our first section here, we see three things that stand out. And there's a lot of things that we could dive into, but there's three main things that I want you to see here in this first section. The first is the response of the people. Look at the response of God, of, of the people of God to God's word. There's a, a reverence, there's a, there's a sense of respect for what is being read. The second thing that we're going to see that stands out is that there's a, an acknowledgement of God's character. They, they say God's character is the true source of power here. And the third thing that stands out is that there are multiple leaders involved in shepherding God's people. Look back for a second, if you will, at verse 3. Again, it tells us that all of these 50,000 people are gathered. All of them have left their homes. All of them have left their businesses, their schools, any other work that would have needed to undoubtedly have been done. And they left it all behind and they gathered to request time in God's word. And you see that. They're the ones who are initiating. They're saying, bring the book of the law to us, Ezra. They're initiating time in God's word. With 50,000 people in a newly rebuilt city, a newly rebuilt wall, I imagine there's probably a lot of things that need to get done. You know, there's probably logistics, there's things that need to be set up, there's things that need to get worked out. But before that happens, there's this acknowledgement that the word of God needs to come first. Let's, let's do this first before we do any of that other stuff. And this is convicting for me, and I want you to think about your to-do list. When it's long and the demands on your time are many, where does spending time in God's word fall on your list of priorities? Is it, I need to go to this first, or does it start to fall Lower and lower on the list. Another thing that stands out to me in verse 3, as all these people are gathering, is that they are attentively listening to the book of the law. It says, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. You guys have heard of active listening skills. That's what's going on here with these 50,000 people because... Unlike Coors Field, they don't have a, a, a mic or a sound system to project. So you've got 50,000 people crowding around uh, uh, this, 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 this wooden platform, and they're all trying to hear, and they're actively listening. They're leaning in. They're, they're making eye contact. They're not distracted. They're not thinking about, what time is this going to end? They're focused on what's happening, and they're doing it for six hours. It's, it's really amazing to think about. And I love how plainly verse 5 tells us that Ezra actually opens the book. Like that might be something that you skip over, but as I'm reading this this week, I'm like, this book has to be open. And as I think about how many Bibles I have, and if you think about your house, how many Bibles you have, or if you think about your phone, how many Bible apps you have, uh, the thing that, that I start to ask myself is how often are these things open? What percentage of my day, what percentage of my week, what percentage of my month are the Bibles that I have actually open and being read and being interacted with and being consumed? That was convicting for me this week. The other thing that I, that I think is so cool about this, and this kind of demonstrates the people's respect or the people's reverence or, or awe for what's going on, is that they, that they stood. They instinctively stand when the book is, is opened. And, um, 
I think about that as, as kind of a descriptive part of this text. It's not prescriptive. It's not that every time the book is opened, we need to stand. If it was, I would probably mess with you guys. I'm not going to lie. I would be like, all right, guys, no, we're not going to open it yet. And then I would open it, and then I'd close it, and then I'd open it, and then I'd close it, and I would just kind of mess with you a little bit, if that was what, what, what scripture, scripture prescribes, but it's not. It's, it's descriptive. It's just showing that there, was a, that there was a respect, that there was a reverence, that there was an awe for God's word. I love going to the symphony. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do. I love uh, taking my daughter there. I love going with my wife. It's just, it's a, it's an awesome date. And I don't know what about it I'm so enthralled with, but I love hearing the instruments being tuned at the beginning. I love uh, seeing the conductor come out. I love how they transition between the overtures. I love the, the, the story that's communicated with the music. And I love hearing and seeing how at the end, all of the people stand. There's this, there's this recognition of what has just happened, that the time and effort and work that it took to compose this, to practice this, to perform this, we're going to stand and we're going to applaud what we heard. And when we stand for something, we recognize that there's something significant about to happen or that something significant has happened. And that's what God's people do as his word is opened before them. They stand, they rise. And again, this is descriptive. It's not saying that this has to, has to happen every time the Bible is opened. But I love the practice. And, and there are times where when we read God's word, I think it's appropriate to just remind ourselves and to, to help our hearts and our minds engage in what is being read and to stand. Another important point here that I want to take a little bit of time is, is uh, to recognize that the God who authored this word is who is being worshipped. The people are not worshipping the text itself, the scroll itself, they're, they're worshiping the God who authored it. Verse 6 tells us that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And they lift their hands, and they bow their faces, and they worship the one true God. So there's a recognition of who God is, and that he is the author, that he is the one who's, who's behind and being revealed in this text. Finally, the last thing that we see from this first section uh, of our passage today is that there are multiple leaders that are facilitating this worship service. It's not just one person. Yes, Ezra is there, and he's the one who's reading, and he's the one who's actually teaching, but there are other leaders that are present, and they're actively engaged in bringing the word of God to God's people. Verse 5 tells us that there are six guys on his right and that there are seven guys on his left as he's reading. And then verse 7 tells us that there are 13 Levites who are helping the people to understand what is being taught. And I think this is a beautiful picture of humility and I think it's a perfect picture of plurality. Yeah, Ezra is the one teaching. Yeah, Nehemiah is the one leading and rebuilding. But we see at least 24 men standing with them in the work that God has called them to do. And I can't help but see the overlap with our pastoral team and our pastors in training and our deacon team and our regroup leaders and their wives leading God's people in God's word. And it's a beautiful picture. We see this big group gathering, but then we also see at the same time these smaller group gatherings where these Levites are, are helping to understand and give meaning to what is being read and people are being transformed by it. And we need both of these settings. You have this big group gathering, but then you have these smaller group gatherings as well. And we gather corporately like this on a Sunday morning as a big group. We teach verse by verse through the Bible. And then we gather during the week as smaller groups to be in community with one another, to apply what we're learning, to hold one another accountable, 
and to fellowship. If you're new to redemption, then we want you to plug into a small group. You know, tomorrow through Thursday, there's going to be small groups meeting around the city, and, and we're going to be doing exactly this. We're going to be digging deeper into God's word. We're going to be holding one another accountable. Uh, accountable. We're going to fellowship together, and, and we need both. The summary, if you if you will, of this first uh, section of scripture for today is is these first eight eight verses are really showing us what it looks like to exposit God's word. This is exposition. Now, exposition is a is it's just simply a term that means you're exposing the biblical truth. You're finding what the truth of the text is saying, and that's how we would summarize what's happening in these these first eight verses. This is uh, a little bit different than exegesis. Maybe you've, you've, you've heard of exegesis as well. So exegesis is where you go in and you actually analyze the text. You study the language, you study the grammar, you study the historical and the, the cultural background, and, and you really dig into what the text is saying. But then exposition is where you take that exegetical study and you determine what the text means. What are, what are the implications for my life? What is this, what is this text actually saying? And verse 7 shows that the Levites are helping people to understand what the text is actually saying. And then verse 8 says that this is happening clearly. So what we see in these first eight verses is exposition of the text for God's people. There's a question that gets thrown around a lot. And if you ask this question, I don't want you to feel embarrassed. I don't want to put you on the spot. But have you ever been a part of a Bible study and then heard somebody say, what does this passage mean to you? I mean, it's kind of a, a common discussion starter question, but in all honesty, it doesn't matter what I think this text means. It doesn't matter. It matters what it says, and it matters what God intended for it to result in. That's what matters, and that's what we want to get to, and that's what we're, that's what's happening in this passage. I think about some of the, the hallmark passages that talk about God's word. I think about how Psalm 119 says, the sum of your word is truth. I think about Isaiah 55 that says, The word goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose which I purpose. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I think of Hebrews 4 that says, The word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And I think of Second Timothy that reminds us that all... Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God, that the woman of God, that the the child, whoever is there that would understand, may be complete. Basically what I think about is, am I trying to interpret the text or is the text interpreting me? Is the text dividing me and finding out what my heart intentions are? Is the text looking at me and saying, this is what God is calling you to do. This is what God is actually saying in this passage. That's what I think about. It's an amazing study, and I would encourage you to do it this week if you haven't gotten the opportunity before, but flip over to Psalm 119. If you flip just a few chapters to your right. This is an amazing study that helps us to to dig in and understand a little bit more about, about God's word. So Psalm 119, 176 verses, and this Again, this blew my mind the first time I heard this, but each section follows a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is a book of poetry, and it's doing an amazing job of describing God's word. 
If you look at the first section, it says Aleph. If you look at the second section in verse 9, it says Bet. If you look at the third section in verse 17, it says Gimel. What it's doing is it's marching through the Hebrew alphabet. And the beginning of each word starts with the letter of the alphabet, and it's describing God's word. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Verse 57, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Verse 65, you have dealt with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Verse 73, your words have made and fashioned me and give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And on and on, it marches through and talks about God's holy word. Amazing study. I would encourage you to look at Psalm 119 this week. So, verse 1 through 8. We've talked about 1 through 8. This is exposition. This is saying, what does God's word mean? What is God's word saying? The next section we see in verses 9 through 12, if you flip back to Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to see application. We're going to see God's word applied. So, you can understand clearly what a text is saying, but application is this next step. Application is where we obey. I thought about it like this. If I tell my daughter, I want you to go and clean your room. She's eight years old. I want you to go and clean your room. Pretty simple statement. And she walks off, and a little while later I find out, well, that didn't actually happen. She didn't clean her room. She and I are going to have a conversation, right? That makes sense. So we sit down, we have a conversation, and she tells me, Dad, I remember you were standing there, I was sitting here, and you told me you wanted me to go and clean my room. And I'd say, great, I'm I'm glad you heard, I'm glad you understood me, but why didn't you listen, and why didn't you actually go and do it? I, I don't understand. And she says to me, well, I thought it'd be enough if, if I understood what you were saying. That would be a, a pretty preposterous conversation, right? To have with an eight-year-old. No, I didn't want you to just understand what I was saying. I wanted you to go and do it. Like, this is something that I was asking you to do, and I wanted you to actually do it. And I think that this is, is so applicable for today as we talk about studying God's word. It falls so woefully short to spend hours studying and understanding the grammar and the language and the context And even what the text is calling us to do, you can understand it and articulate it, but if you stop there and don't do it, what's the point? Application and heart transformation are the point. Think about it this way. What if the book of Ezra ended after chapter 6? What if the book of Nehemiah ended after chapter 7? We rebuilt the temple. Great. That's, 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 That's awesome. That's good. We rebuilt the wall around the city. That's that's also awesome. That's really good. But how much would we be missing if we lost the last half of both of these books where we see the rebuilding of the people? 
where we see spiritual renewal take place. That's what it's like to, to study and not apply. You miss the point. You miss the heart transformation. You miss the application. The second half of each of these books is so vital, and it gives us this picture of, of the rebuilding that's needed for the people. And so it is with Bible study if we stop and don't do what it says. So when someone says to me, let's go and do a Bible study, I'm like, amen, I want to study this, I want to dig into this, I want to know the grammar, I want to know the historical background, I want to know what's going on, and I want to say, what does this mean for our lives? But I want to actually go and do it too. I think it's really common for us to, to, to want to study, and it's almost easy easier to say, let's get together and study, and it's harder, our flesh is maybe that barrier that says, let's go out and do this. Let's go out and actually do what this text is calling us to do. I, I think about James, and it tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And I want to urge you, church family, to be appliers of God's word and not studiers only. I think it's pretty amazing to see what happens to the people when they hear and understand God's word spoken to them, and then they do it. They apply what they're, what's actually, what's actually being, being spoken to them from the Lord. Let's read verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then they said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So what happens when God's word is read and when there's transformation? There's brokenness. If you... If you see that the tone of this passage, it changes. The people are broken. They're, they're shattered. This is a, a perfect picture of that two-edged sword. They're pierced. They're pierced to their core. They recognize their sin. They recognize their guilt. They recognize their shame, and they're grieved over it. They repented, and this is the starting. This is the path that ultimately leads to joy. You see that at the at the, the second half of this section, that joy is the result, and and I was trying to think of a way that we could illustrate this. And, and this is what I'm thinking about. So you have God's word and you come to God's word and there are different directions that you can take. You're going to read a passage. You're going to interact with the God of the universe in the text. And there's different directions that you can take. Maybe you, maybe you stray to the right. You read the text and you, 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 you stray this direction. You divert to the right and you start to, to fall victim towards legalism. You start to, to read the text and you start to, to look at the law and you say, okay, there's 612, there's maybe 617 different commandments. Well, we gotta keep these. God, God is going to be pleased with us and He's gonna love us more if we keep these commandments. God is gonna be, be pleased and there's gonna be this tendency towards self-righteousness when we interact with God's word in a legalistic way. Maybe you, you, you stray to left and you're, you're, you're prone towards license and you, you come to God's word and you're like, God's forgiven me. God, God's covered my sin. I can go and do whatever I want and it doesn't matter because 
he's already he's already paid the price, so I can just go out and do anything I want whenever I want. You you stray to the left and you see this license or or kind of this indifference for what God is calling us to to, to actually be holy as He is holy. And the third text, the third direction that you see is what the Israelites are doing here. They press into God's word, and there's this repentance, there's this brokenness, and that leads to joy. That path through repentance, through brokenness, leads to joy. And this path can also trip us up, can't it, as a believer? Can you, can you think of a time when maybe you've, you've gotten stuck in a cycle of repentance and you haven't moved on to that joy of the Lord? Where maybe you're convicted about something and rather than recognizing Christ's forgiveness, recognizing who you are in Christ, you get stuck there and you start to, to say, I'm the worst. I, 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 I've, I've done this again and I just, I can't get past this. And you can get stuck in this cycle of repentance. So repentance is needed, but we have to be on guard even in that place where the flesh can take over and try and steal this joy, this joy of the Lord. When I think about joy, I don't think about health and wealth. Joy is not a guarantee against cancer. It's not a guarantee against chronic pain. It's not the absence of miscarriage. It's not guaranteed fertility. It's it's not freedom from financial stress. It's not the lack of persecution or never having to suffer for your faith. Joy can be found in all of these circumstances because it's a posture of our heart that Christ is sufficient. He is enough. We don't need anything else. That We can count all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. That's joy. The only joy that reflects the worth of God and overflows in God-glorifying love is joy that's rooted in true knowledge of God. And the degree that which our knowledge is small, the degree to which our knowledge is flawed, our joy is going to be poor. Our joy is going to be flawed. It's going to be a poor representation of, of God's true excellence. So we want to press into scripture. We want to, to grow in our knowledge of who he is. But we want to apply that as well. And that's where we start to see this true picture of what joy can really look like. The experience of uh, Israel in this passage in Nehemiah 8 is really a, a, an amazing picture of how God-glorifying joy happens in the heart. So Ezra reads the word, he reads it to him, and then the Levites explain it. They start to understand what's going on, and then the people go away, and they make great rejoicing. Yes, there's this, this season of repentance. Yes, there's this, this season of, of, of brokenness, but we see that the, the end point is this, this, this great rejoicing. And it was because they understood the words, the true words of God. And I think about Jesus as he's talking about joy, and as he's talking about um, Specifically with respect to the disciples, he says in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And then two chapters later in 17, he says, These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And what we are mainly seeing in this passage is that in the word is the Lord himself, God himself, offering himself to be known and to be enjoyed. And so our passage starts to come to a close. And we see now in verses 13 through 18 this idea of celebration. We see these feasts start to come back up. So God's word is read, it's understood, God's word is applied, it transforms the heart, and the result is joy and celebration around who God is and who they are in him. Think back 
for a minute to our discussion about these feasts. If you look at verse 9 through 12, they're saying to them, this day is holy. What they're talking about is the, the Feast of Trumpets. They're, they're reminding them that this day has been set, af- set apart. If you go back to Leviticus uh, chapter 23, it talks about all the different feasts and all the different celebrations of the Lord. And it's saying, this day is holy. You're broken, and that's, that's a right response, but this day is holy, and there's reason to celebrate. Let's read on. It says in verse 13, on the second day, so day one, they have a 50,000 person church service. On day two, they say, okay, this isn't enough. Let's go back for some more. So on the second day, the heads of the father's house of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof. And in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. From the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great, there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So you have a 50,000 church, uh, person church service, then you have a men's breakfast, and then you have a, a family VBS for a week where you go out and camp and study God's word. Like, this is amazing. This is an awesome, awesome 15 days. Like, this is a this is a celebration to remember. And it says in there, um, they had not done this since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. So basically what it's saying is, they knew these feasts. These feasts maybe were celebrated, but now after God's word has come in and after God's word has transformed these feasts are celebrated in a whole new way. It's an amazing picture. And I started to think back about the, the, the three holidays that we originally talked about. I think about Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. And maybe you grew up observing these holidays, these holidays in a, a gospel-centered way. Maybe it was a, a Christian home and you, you really saw Christ in each of these. You saw Christ made much of. But maybe like me, you celebrated these holidays before you came to know Christ. Imagine how they would change or how new meaning to each one of them would would jump out to you after coming to know Christ. How would you see them in a whole new way after following Jesus? That's what happened to the Israelites in our passage today, right? They knew these three feasts and the holidays, but they get confronted with who God is in his word, and suddenly the blinders come off and they worship in a whole new way. Prior to knowing Jesus, maybe Thanksgiving was all about spending time with family and, and having this elaborate meal. Those are great reasons to celebrate, don't get me wrong. But then think about the new height and the new depth and the new width of what it means to be thankful when you consider that what you deserved was death and hell and punishment for a heart that's utterly sinful. But instead of getting those things, you've been given Christ's righteousness. You've been covered by his atoning blood and you now have eternity to spend with him, that's a fresh perspective on what Thanksgiving can truly look like. How about Christmas? 
Think about maybe celebrating Christmas before knowing Christ. Maybe it was about giving gifts. Maybe it was more consumer-driven. Maybe it was actually selfless. Maybe it was, I want to give a good gift to somebody. That's, that's awesome. But what about Christmas after coming to know Jesus? What about celebrating the Advent season? What new heights and depths and widths this season can take on? God, our Father, the giver of good and perfect gifts, has given us the ultimate gift in his son, Jesus. And the whole world can be the beneficiaries of this. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about that for a moment. Just a member of the triune God, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant. He's born in the likeness of men, and he humbly comes as an infant. That's what Christmas is all about. Same for New Year's. Maybe uh, a day that before you knew Christ didn't start until noon. Maybe the blood alcohol level content was still elevated from the night before. And now after Christ, it's a time spent in prayer and reflection about the faithfulness of God in the year to come. Thinking about how he has been faithful in the year past. A sense of anticipation, excitement about what this new year is going to hold. Thinking about how, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation and beholding the new that has come. So just as coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior transforms your view of the world and the view of holidays, the Israelites here in Nehemiah 8 found transformation and revival in the celebration of their God during these feasts. And the most important part of this is that the instrument of change, of spiritual renewal, in that time was the word of Almighty God. And if you think about for you and I today, the instrument of change and spiritual renewal is found in the word of Almighty God. The difference, though, is this, and this is important. Don't miss this, church family, that when we approach God's word, it's through Jesus Christ. Think about that. The Israelites are drawing near to God in the law, but they're still under the law. And Christ tells us in Matthew 5 that he came to fulfill the law. You see, under the law, they saw how unholy they were. And under the gospel, we see Christ's righteousness given to us. Christ tells us in in Matthew 5, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. I came to, to fulfill it. Under the law, they were confronted with their sin and the resulting death. And under the gospel, you and I are confronted with joy and the life that we're given in Christ. They recognized how acutely they had fallen short. And we recognize today how acutely Jesus Christ has not and cannot fall short. We have a new identity and a new purpose. And God's word transforms God's people because it gives them Jesus Christ. And the result is the joy of the Lord. And God's people said, Amen.